So my plan was that I would coordinate my drinking with the books that I'm going to talk about tonight. When I talk about the book by the Scottish author, I would drink scotch. When I talk about the book by the American author, I would drink bourbon. And all the while, I would drink out of a glass that is in honor of the British author that I would be talking about. So I poured the glass at Jack Daniels in expectation of talking about the American author when I realized that Margaret Atwood is a Canadian. And yes, of course, I could have poured myself a nice glass of Canadian whiskey, some Crown Royal or whatever it is. No, Crown, yeah, Crown, I think, is Canadian. Um, but I already poured Jack Daniels, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be drinking my Jack Daniels first, and then we'll see how it goes as I get further through the work. Um, so last time we talked, I was teasing that I was going to be reading the new Margaret Atwood book called The Heart Goes Last. And so I did read it, and I want to talk about it with you. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about my experience with Margaret Atwood, which is basically non-existent. Um, the first time that I'd heard about Margaret Atwood was a book called The Blind Assassin. And I bought it because it looked interesting and kind of weird, but I didn't actually read it. In fact, my wife read it, and I don't really remember whether she enjoyed it or not. Next, fast forward probably about seven, eight, nine years, and I'm looking on websites for best books and book lists and things like that, because that's what I do. I, I like looking at book lists. And I see that Margaret Atwood's book, The Handmaid's Tale, is frequently on the list. And so I decided I was going to buy it and read it. And um, in fact, I think we, we spoke about that many, many moons ago and many, many episodes ago. And I hadn't read anything else by her since then and ha really hadn't had any interest. Um, I kind of had the feeling that she was a bit of a science fiction author. Uh, I had read some of the synopses of her other books, and none of them seemed to make any sense, let alone were of interest to me. And so I never really went back to read any Margaret Atwood. But this latest book, The Heart Goes Last, I saw a review of it, I think in Entertainment Weekly, and it kind of looked interesting, kind of looked a little bit lighter than some of her other books. It looked to be a little bit more um, fun and less science fiction. And so I decided that I would pick it up and, uh, and give it a whirl. It also didn't hurt that the book is not very long. I think it's only about 300 pages, maybe even a little bit less than that. Um, so I, I picked it up, and uh, I really enjoyed this book, The Heart Goes Last. The theory is, and if you've read The Handmaid's Tale, you can kind of see that she's got a little bit of a similar, um, a similar scheme for the book as far as this utopian society, although Handmaid's Tale was more of a post-apocalyptic or, or um, what's the word? It's... Uh, dystopian. Um, this book is not quite like that, um, although it does take the traditional social concept of the world and turn it on its ear. The idea is that there's been some sort of a great depression or financial collapse of the economy, and people are out of work, people are living out of their cars, people are really not able to make ends meet. And that, of course, includes our two heroes, Stan and Charmaine. Now, there's a, a new society that has been created, this society called Consilience. And Consilience is sort of like a separate town. The way I envisioned it is at the end of Atlas Shrugged, when we find out where John Galt was, he'd, they'd created this sort of utopian society hidden away from everything else. And this is kind of the way I perceive this Consilience. It's a utopian society that's hidden away from everything else. But it's not exactly hidden. It's kind of out in the open, but it's separated. There's, you know, it's it's completely enclosed and contained, a self-sufficient society. And the society encourages people to join the society by giving them things that they want, which is security and a home and a place to live and work. The trade-off being that in order to get those things, they have to voluntarily go into a prison. And it's on a month-by-month -month basis. So one month they're in the society, living their life with their jobs that were given to them by the by the project itself. And then after the month is over, they go into prison and they're there for a month. And at alternating months, they're out and they're in, they're out and they're in, and they're given a place to live and they're given, like I said, jobs. And while they're in the prison, they're given jobs. And I don't remember specifically why this society was created or what benefit they were supposed to be providing to the world or how it, how it benefited um, the society. I, I just don't remember, but I also don't think that it was particularly um, necessary or, or uh, you know, it, it, it was a forgettable type of a, of a thing. 
Anyways, Stan and Charmaine are living out of their car. They can't make ends meet. They see an ad for this. I don't remember if it was on television or whatever it is. And they go and they sign up. Now, the idea, though, is that once you're in, you can't get out. And obviously, that's not a good situation. It never bodes well. Um, but things go well for Stan and Charmaine. They enjoy it. They, they have a life. They have a house. They're there for a month. Then they go into prison for the month. Then they come back out and they resume their lives. Except that Stan and Charmaine, uh, let me go back. While they're in the prison, there's another couple that lives in their house and they just alternate and they switch off. And in the houses, there are like lockers where they keep their stuff. And so their stuff goes into locker storage when they go to the prison. And when they come back out, they take the stuff out of the storage and the their, their trade-off people have put their stuff in the storage. And everything seems to be going well, except Stan and Charmaine both seem to develop an attraction to their alternates. Not having ever seen them, not knowing what they look like, they've developed an expectation of who these people are. And they decide that they want to act on it. Charmaine, though, acts on it much more deliberately than Stan does. She actually starts an affair with her, you know, with the double or with the alternate family, the, the man in the alternate family. And this affair goes on for quite a few months, where on the date of the transition, where she's supposed to go into the prison, she before she reports, she goes to find the rendezvous spot where she's going to meet this guy, and they go at it. And it's, okay, I mean, it's kind of bizarre. Um, the Stan, he develops some sort of a an attraction to who he believes is the female alternate um, for the time when he's in the prison, although he doesn't know anything about her and later finds out that the alternate is actually his wife and it's kind of a weird situation of how he discovers that um but it's just kind of a bizarre existence um this this you you, you start to see how stan and charmaine are drifting apart because they're both kind of infatuated with the quote-unquote alternate um Charmaine in actuality having a sexual relationship with the male alternate Stan having a just a, a an infatuation with the female alternate that he's never even met before and doesn't know anything about while they're in the prison though they have jobs in the prison and Charmaine's job is basically as an executioner um, it's a conducting of lethal injections to prisoners who for whatever reason have been determined need to be killed and shipped off and Charmaine does her job very well there's sensitivity to it and she doesn't really know nor does she care what happens to the bodies after she conducts her job she just realizes that that's her job and she does what she's supposed to do are you by now a little bit confused or like eyebrow raised about how bizarre this sounds because it's really bizarre and what you ultimately get to the point of is that Charmaine, uh, well, one of the bodies that comes to her table for the lethal injection is her husband. Um, and I'm not going to really tell you much more than that, other than you, there is a happy ending, let's put it that way, for Stan and Charmaine. But it, this was just really, really bizarre. Um, you have the, 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 prison project called the Positron, Positron Project, Positron, the Positron Project. Um, amongst the things that they manufacture, they manufacture sex toys. They, uh, they manufacture not only sex toys, but actual sex surrogates, I think is what the word is. And you can have them designed in any person you want. Um, you can give them the dimensions and they will create a sex bot for you in any any likeness you want. Um, they also uh, are creating sex dolls of Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley. And it just, the book got so bizarre and still fun. I mean, it was it, it's a much more lighthearted than The Handmaid's Tale was, but it's bizarre. And I found myself reading it really in disbelief that I was actually, this was the story, that these things were happening, that that our our hero Stan is smuggled out of the conciliance as a Elvis sex bot and goes to Las Vegas where he becomes an Elvis Presley escort and it, it just it's it's so bizarre um, and 
you know, I've read a lot of books where things follow an A to B to C to D path. And whether the outcome is predictable or suspenseful or straightforward or even books have have alternate structures, I don't recall reading a book where I was actually questioning whether what I was reading was accurate. And this was one of those books. And maybe it's a function of my not having a lot of experience with science fiction. But this book just really was indescribable. And I found myself reading it thinking, am I really reading this? Is this actually in a book? And not only is this actually in a book, but this isn't a book by somebody who is almost universally regarded as a significant talent. This book was just played bizarre. Um, and I enjoyed it. And, and I enjoyed it enough, by the way, that I looked into other Margaret Atwood books to get, and I ended up ordering one called uh, Alias Grace, which I'll probably get to. Um, and I, I probably will end up reading The Blind Assassin at some point. But I'm curious as to whether this is par for her course, this uh, experience of the bizarre, or whether this was just a, a one-off. I, I really don't know. So if you've read any Margaret Atwood, I'm, I encourage you to reach out to me and let me know, is this something that I can come to expect from her works, or was this just a real bizarre, a real bizarre story? Because I kind of was looking at this as expecting some, some prurient, some inappropriateness. I, I knew that there was like a sexual deviance to the story, but I had no clue it was going to be to this level of bizarre. Um and it was fine. I mean, it was fine. It was a distraction. Um, you can certainly see that there is a political aspect to the story and, and a, um, you know, a criticism of, um, you know, the, the expectation of a utopia or the creation of models of model societies. Um, but it was just a real bizarre method of, of accomplishing that. And, um, yeah, so I enjoyed it, but it was just bizarre. And I encourage you to read it if you have any interest in it, or um, we can talk about it offline, I guess, if if you want to get more information about the book. But uh, yeah, that was The Heart Goes Last by Margaret Atwood. So now the next two books I'm going to talk about, I Broke My Own Rule. And it's a rule that we've discussed many, many times, my rule of not reading a book more than once. And yet, these next two books are both books that I had previously read, and I reread them. And with all the other books that I had on my shelf, and I've got tons and tons of books, to reread these books, you got to think there was some reason and, and explanation to it, right? Well, the first book that I reread was Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. And in keeping with the theme of my coordination of the evening, I'm drinking my Jack Daniels out of a tumbler which is, I don't know how to describe it, but it's a Tale of Two Cities tumbler. Um, and it actually has the beginnings of chapter one of the book as it's inscribed around the uh, body of the glass. So that's my ode to Charles Dickens. Um, now, I first read Great Expectations when I was in ninth grade, and uh, I hated it. Uh, I read it as part of a class and so we read how, I don't remember what the process of reading it was, but I remember we read it in class and we had to read it home and we had tests and all that kind of crap. And I really didn't like it. Uh, I didn't think it was relatable. I didn't think that there was anything that was particularly uh, meaningful about it. And I really just didn't enjoy it. And I know that part of it is I didn't enjoy the method by which it was taught. I didn't particularly enjoy the teacher. Um, I didn't like the the teacher's perspective that there was only one answer and that was it. There were no further discussions or interpretations. And I fought reading it every step of the way. And I think part of the reason why I fought reading it was because when I was 12 years old, that's when I really started to read and, and to read voraciously. And I really didn't like the idea that I had to read something that teachers told me to read. I only wanted to read what I wanted to read. And so no matter what it was, I resisted having to read those books. But as I've gotten older, and as you know, I've read many more of Charles Dickens's novels, and looking at the lists of what people have determined is, um, you know, uh, Charles Dickens's best novels, and and put them into some sort of an order of of best to worst, Great Expectations keeps coming up at the top or near the top of those lists, and I figured that 
There had to be a reason. There had to be something that 13-year-old, 14-year-old Rob Cohen wasn't getting that 40-year-old Rob Cohen could. And I picked up the, the book at a, at a uh, used bookstore. It was only 500 and something pages, not anywhere near as lengthy as Our Mutual Friend or David Copperfield, which I'd already read and enjoyed. Then I figured that you know I could take a week and a half or so, two weeks, and read it and see if my perspective on it had changed. See if my my affinity for Charles Dickens of more recent years would allow me to enjoy Great Expectations more than I did 26 years ago. And the answer is, yeah, and no. Um, I remember as I read the first 100 pages of this book that I really, really liked it. I really liked the first 100 pages for whatever reason. And, and I already knew how it ended. So the idea of who his benefactor is, the relationship with Miss Havisham, what happens between he and Estella, and the ultimate uh, downfall of Miss Havisham, I, I kind of already knew all that stuff because I'd remembered most of it from, from 24 or 25 years ago. And I remembered very vividly the opening scenes of Pip, our hero in the graveyard, and coming into contact with the convict and things of that nature. But I didn't remember as well the beauty of the of the writing and the the descriptions of the characters. And in the first 100, 150 pages or so, that's really where the book was of of particular enjoyment to me. There was a a a, a quote a, a part of the passage in the book that I want to read to you. It's from the very first chapter where Pip meets the convict in the in the graveyard. And this is after the gra- the convict has told Pip to go get him, um, you know, a saw to cut off his chains and some food and whatever that is, sent him on his way. So the convict goes back to hide and sends Pip back home. And this is what Dickens says after they part ways and say goodnight. This is Pip, who it's, it's all in first person, Pip talking about what he sees as a convict walks away. At the same time, he hugged his shuddering body in both his arms clasping himself as if to hold himself together, and limped towards the low church wall. As I saw him go, picking his way among the nettles and among the brambles that bound the green mounds, he looked in my young eyes as if he were eluding the hands of the dead people, stretching up cautiously out of their graves to get a twist upon his ankle and pull him in. I mean, that's just awesome. That is so descriptive and and illustrative I mean, you can picture that. You 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 get the feel. You 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 have this vision of of the 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 brambles and the the weeds being hands that are trying to pull this convict down under the earth as he's trying to get away. It's just, it was so cool. I really just enjoyed that. And that was on page um, page eight or no page page seven. Um, no, I apologize. Page five. Um, that was on page five of a 525-page book, and I knew exactly where it was, and I remembered exactly what it was that I wanted to read to you. That's really the gift of, of Charles Dickens. And this book is is put together in three sections, and each section is just about 175 pages long. And I remember the first 175 pages I thought were really, really good. The second 175 pages were not as good. And the third 175 pages were slow to slow to slow to, gosh, I just want this to be over, to I can't believe there's 100 pages left, to okay, finally it's over, okay, oh, that was kind of exciting, now it's over. And that really was the the trajectory of my reading. I got to about 100 and something pages left in the book, and I just couldn't wait for it to be over. It dragged, it was slow. Um, I think that I think, and this is going to be sacrilegious to say, but I really think that Dickens could have used an editor in this book. There seemed to be so many chapters that went nowhere that were really unnecessary. And you you find that Dickens's novels take one or take, take, take a, what's the right way to put it? Their character studies wrapped up in stories. In most of his books, at least the ones that I've I've read, there is a, a a story arc that takes place from beginning to end. And the character goes through some sort of a beginning, a middle, a denouement, a conclusion. There's some struggle, there's some strife, there's some challenge that the hero has to overcome. But filtered in amongst that 
are just character studies. They're characters that the main character comes into contact with, and they're little nuances and idiosyncrasies about those characters and each of them has their own personality and each of them has their own voice and each of them has their own personality and this was a function of of dickens's process where he wrote he would walk he would just walk around london and he would see people and he would create backstories for these people and some of these people when you read about them in the book the main character may only come into contact with them once or twice, and yet Dickens has created this enormous backstory to them and given them a personality, given them a life. And that's truly a gift and a talent that Dickens had. But it also at times detracts from the story. And to me, Great Expectations is much more about the story than it is about the character study. Um, by comparison, David Copperfield, to me, is much more about the character study than it is about the story, because there really isn't much of a story to David Copperfield. He is born, he has a crappy childhood, he grows up, he makes friends, he gets married, he gets divorced, and then he meets somebody else and gets married again. That's pretty much the story arc for David Copperfield, because it's, in some respects, based on, on Charles Dickens's life himself. And so in order to fill the gaps of the lack of significant drama in the story, Dickens gives you characters. He gives you the people that David Copperfield comes into contact with. That, by the way, makes for a much lengthier book. By comparison, you look at Oliver Twist, and Oliver Twist is much more about the story. It's, it's a shorter book, um, and the, there aren't as many characters because each of them has a vital role in moving the story along, whether it's, um, uh, you know, Fagin or Artful Dodger or Bill Sykes or whatever the other characters are, and I don't remember them off the top of my head, each of them plays an important role in moving the story along and bringing Oliver Twist as he moves through life, at least to the point where he gets adopted. And so I think with Great Expectations, there wasn't, oh, well, let me go back. The other book uh, that I want to talk about, Our, Our Mutual Friend, that is clearly a character study embodied with various different stories. Um, so when you think about like uh, um, David Copperfield, it's, it's one story about one person and the people he comes in contact with. Our Mutual Friend is not about one person. It's about many different characters and the many different people that those characters come into contact with and the various different story arcs that ultimately come together. Great Expectations is a story, and yet, and, and it's a story that has a, be a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it tracks, it tracks Pip from in, uh, basically adolescence through his upbringing up through adulthood. And so there's much more drama and suspense, and there's more outside factors that impact his life that aren't associated with who the characters are, but they're, you know, not as a character study. And yet there's too many instances here where Dickens derails the story, derails the plot in favor of character studies. And to me, I don't, I don't understand it. It just seemed to me like there were too many characters that could have been thrown away, that could have been excised, could have been cut out, or their appearances could have been minimized. And so I found that the story seemed to drag because of these deviations from the story into the character study. And um, I think that's what really detracted from the book. Now, that unfortunately would seem to rally in favor of my enjoying the book more when I was a kid, when I read it the first time, because when I read it in junior high, we didn't read the whole 525 pages. We read a condensed version. All of these quote-unquote character studies, all of these extraneous characters that don't have much impact in the ultimate story arc are gone. They weren't there. They weren't in the version I read the first time around. It really was the bare bones of the story. It was about Pip. It was about the convict. It was about Miss Havisham and Estella. It was about Abel Magwitch, his benefactor period, as far as I can recall. That's what the story was when I read it 25 years ago. You would think I should have enjoyed it more then. 
I think I enjoyed it more now, in spite of the drag parts, in spite of the unnecessary deviations from the story. I think I enjoyed it more now because I appreciate Dickens's talent more now. I have better experience with Dickens to appreciate it more. Um, and, and on top of that, I also have a longer history now, or more recent history at least, of enjoying his other books that I'm willing to give him a pass on some of these other downsides that I perceive in this book. This to me is by no means a perfect book. Um, but I think I enjoyed it more now because I've got the recent history with Dickens, because I, I, I understand the talent. I appreciate the talent. I don't think it's one that I would want to read again, but I think that the characters do have some significant value, include because I think they're the most well-drawn and memorable characters. I mean, you remember Miss Havisham as she's sitting in the same room in her wedding dress with the, the, the ballroom completely set up for the wedding that never took place. You can still remember the convict and the, uh, you know, the 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 situation in the graveyard, and and so those are the the parts of this book that will stay with you. And I think that, by the way, is what makes this book so popular on the best of Dickens' lists, why it frequently goes to the top of, of the list at either one or number two, because of the the dynamic characters that were created. But from the standpoint of being an enjoyable reading experience, I have had much more enjoyable reading experiences with Oliver Twist and our mutual friend and David Copperfield. Um, I still think that if you're going to use a Dickens book for kids to read, it's it should be Oliver Twist. I mean, I, I truly, truly believe that. Because I, I think it's more relatable to kids. The idea of an orphan who is just trying to find a family, who falls in with a bad crowd, um, who turns to a life of crime, but it's not really a life of crime, but at least sees the underside of, of the city. And there's a thrilling climax at the end with a murder, which is exciting. People, you know, kids like that. And there's a happy ending. That's relatable to kids. Great Expectations is not relatable to children. Children, 12 years old, 13 years old, they don't know about the good life. They don't know about striving, uh, about, um, you know, being given a gift, winning the lottery, so to speak, which is what Pip does. They don't know about heartbreak that Miss Havisham suffers. They don't understand. They don't understand that Miss Havisham wants Estella to break Pip's heart. They don't get that. And they don't understand the connection that the convict has to Pip that gives the convict the reason to be Pip's benefactor. Kids don't get that. They don't understand it. And yes, the writing is is beautiful at parts. But at other parts, it's just plain dull and, and, and boring. And if you're not identifying with the characters, then you're having a hard time appreciating the work. I can appreciate it now, 25 years after I read it the first time, because I appreciate the work itself. I appreciate the language. I appreciate the writing. But I still don't know that I identify with any of the characters. And in fact, I still can't figure out why the convict made Pip his his project. Why he, A, I don't know where, where the convict got all his money. Um, but second, I don't know where the convict, or, or why the convict chose Pip or why he decided to do it for him. And I'm sure it's in there, but if I didn't pick it up, if I wasn't clear on it, then that's a problem. How is a 14-year-old supposed to be clear on it? So I just, I don't know. Uh, I don't know why this book is still being taught. Um, I, I do think Oliver Twist is a better one. I don't even think David Copperfield is particularly a good one for, for kids to read because I just don't find it to be as accessible. Um, Oliver Twist is a book I read the whole time with a smile on my face. And yes, it was still Dickens, and yes, it still had his complicated language and, and, and um, you know, very well-crafted sentences. But it was a it was a story. It wasn't a character study. It was a story, and I think that if you want to create 
readers of Dickens, you start with the stories. You don't start with the character studies. You don't start with the Pickwick Papers. Um, because there's no story there, as far as I recall. Um, now, I haven't read it, <laughs> because I believe there's no story there. I don't want to read a book where there's no story. You know? You don't, you, you don't read Bleak House, because that's really heavy. You, maybe you read A Tale of Two Cities, because that's a story. That's an adventure story. But people don't always like Tale of Two Cities because it's such a deviation from the traditional David Copperfield story, or the traditional Dickens stories. Um, so that was, that was that. That was Great Expectations. Now, unfortunately, I then went ahead and read another book that I'd already read. This one, Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. And what I did was I took a break for a second and I went downstairs and I refilled my glass with some scotch because as you're probably aware, or if you're not, I'm going to tell you anyways, Robert Louis Stevenson was born in Edinburgh. Ah, and so we're actually going to be going to Edinburgh at the end of uh, July, beginning of August. And um, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll try some scotch while we're there, of course. Um, but maybe we'll see some of the Robert Louis Stevenson sites. I know there's a museum dedicated to the writers of Scotland, so maybe we'll see. Uh, but I read Treasure Island a few years ago, not very long. I would say only maybe two or three years ago, and that was the first time that I'd read it. I don't remember why I read it, um, but I guess I found it at a used bookstore and figured it was time. Why not? And I really liked it. Uh, and it's, it's just a straightforward adventure story. It is just an adventure story. There's nothing, there's no Dickens in it. There's no, um, I, I, at least I don't perceive there to be strong societal um, messages or anything like that. It's just an adventure story. And on top of that, it's a pirate story. And when you read this book and you realize that an entire genre of entertainment was basically created by this one book, when you think about after Robert, after Treasure Island, and and you've got the the creation of the pirate stories, the pirate movies, and pirate stage shows, and pirate rides, and now the resurgence of the pirates with the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. All of that is because of Treasure Island and Robert Louis Stevenson. So while I had read it a couple years ago and I enjoyed it, this time around I read the annotated Treasure Island which is exactly what you would think it would be. It's the book with notes, with footnotes, and descriptions, and explanations, and definitions, and criticisms, and critiques. And this was, the, this annotated version was by Simon Barker Benfield. And it, it came out a couple years ago, and I had gotten it as a Hanukkah present, but I had not had a chance to read it. And I figured now is a good time as any. I had a break in my schedule, so to speak. And so I decided to read it. And I, I think I enjoyed the book more this time than I did the first time. When you're reading a book just for pure entertainment, it's easy to simply gloss over some of the language in an effort to get at the real heart of the story. Yet this time around, it was much more an, ex an experience in studying. And having the opportunity to really take the book slowly, read the footnotes, understand what was being said, I got a little bit more about naval history and the ships and the way they were built and the the pirates than I'd really anticipated. But I really enjoyed the opportunity to take the time and go slowly. I was under no pressure to finish this book by a certain time. I could read at my own speed and really digest the information. And it's hard to read a book like this when this when you already know the story so well because you've already seen the movie or you saw any one of the other incantations of the movie, whether it be the Muppet version or Treasure Planet, the Disney version, or I don't know, there's so many darned versions of Treasure Island. You already know the story. You already know about Long John Silver and you already know about Jim Hawkins and you already know about all of those other characters. And so it's sometimes difficult to separate what you already know about the story from what you're actually reading. 
And in this instance, having the opportunity to really go slowly, I was able to really focus on the story in the book and separate it from what I'd already known about the characters and about the um, the adaptations of the story. Now, one of the things that I struggled with, and I know that other people have struggled with it in the past, is what to make of Long John Silver. Because when you think about Treasure Island, the question that always, I guess not always, but the, a question that will come up is, who's the villain in the story? And it's easy to think that Long John Silver is the villain because he's the, the pirate that eventually leads the mutiny um, over the, the officers of the ship in favor of seeking out Flint's treasure. But his, his villainy, so to speak, really kind of flip-flops and changes. And he's kind of a flim-flam artist. You know, he, he goes whichever way the wind is blowing. And if it benefits him, he will side with the mutineers. And if it benefits him, he will side with the good guys, with Jim Hawkins and his crew er, and, and the, the officers and crew of the, of the Hispaniola. And so I know that, and this is something that I'd heard when Treasure Planet came out, that Treasure Planet by Disney being an animated film was difficult for young kids to grasp because they couldn't figure out whether Long John Silver was a villain or a good guy. And in fact, we see as we watch that movie, and certainly as we read Treasure Island, the novel, that Jim Hawkins has his difficulty in determining whether Silver is a villain or a good guy. There's no bones about it. We are warned, we have always been warned, whether it be in the adaptations or in the, the novel, the original source material, that that Long John Silver is a bad guy. Um, we don't know him by name when he's first introduced to us, but we do know to watch out for um, with the pirate with one leg. And so when he is first introduced on the scene as the pirate with one leg, Jim Hawkins says, this is the guy that I was warned of. This is the guy that Billy Bones warned me about. And yet you see that Jim Hawkins starts to take a liking to Long John Silver. Now the adaptations of the book, the the two that I can more clearly discuss because I'm more familiar with the source with those material is Treasure Planet and the Muppets Treasure Island. They spend a lot more time developing the relationship between Jim Hawkins and Long John Silver. The book does not spend that much time developing the relationship. But since the book is for the most part told from Jim Hawkins' perspective, you get his internal characterizations of Silver and you get to see that that Hawkins starts to like him. He takes he takes a liking to him. And so that creates a challenge. Because while Long John Silver is probably a very is, is probably is a very well known villain in literature, it, it's it's it, his his villainy is not as easily identifiable as somebody is like the Wicked Witch of the West or Darth Vader, at least until the end of Return of the Jedi. The Wicked Witch of the West and Darth Vader are evil. There's nothing else about it. That's it. They are evil. There's no redeeming qualities about them. But Silver is a different character. He's a different beast. Is he a villain? He's not evil. He's got bad motives. But ultimately, he takes the high road, and I don't know. Does he? Does he take the 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 pot? Does Does he go with the good guys because it means saving him? Is Is he simply a selfish character who will only be concerned with his own, um, with his own well being? I don't know because at some point he takes a stance against the other mutineers in order to save Jim. And so I can understand this difficulty that that people will have in determining whether Long John Silver is a good guy or a bad guy, whether he is a villain or if he ends up not being a villain but being a hero. Um, he certainly, well, I, I, don't, I was going to say he was a sympathetic character, but I can't even, I don't know whether even in the book he, he comes off as a sympathetic character. I can tell you that when you're watching a portrayal of Long John Silver, whether it be the animated version or the, the Muppet version or even the Disney version, any of the versions they've done, it's easier to feel sympathetic for a person who or a character who's tangible. 
you see him on the screen. You can see facial uh, uh, facial uh, uh, responses and tics, and you can see how they look at a character, and they, you can see how they hear how they speak, and you can ease much more easily be sympathetic to somebody like that. So at the end of the movie, when Lon John Silver escapes, you feel okay with it. You don't have a problem with it. I mean, let's not lose sight of the fact that this guy was the mutineer, and he led the charge to get rid of the officers of the Hispaniola so that he could go get Flint's treasure himself. He is a bad guy. And yet by the end of those movies, you feel sympathy for him. You're okay that this bad guy gets away. But in the book, you don't really have that so much. You have Jim's characterizations of him and you have Jim's uh, recitation of Silver's actions and what is said. But you don't get the tangible sympathy or you don't have the tangible sympathy that you do when you view or witness a portrayal. And so I'm curious as to how Long John Silver was regarded when the book first came out. Was he regarded as a true villain? Was he regarded as somebody who um, went where the money was and was only interested in preserving himself? You know, when you think about it, what they do to the other mutineers at the end of the book, it's not a kind thing. Um, there, there's a lot of killing. There were however many mutineers there were. And by the time Jim Hawkins and Squire Trelawney and Captain Smollett leave Treasure Island with John with Long John Silver, there's three mutineers left. And uh, the decision is made to let them stay on the island. Because if they brought them back with them to England, they'd have to hang them for mutiny. That's a pretty dire and, and dramatic way to deal with villains or to, to deal with the bad guys. Um, and there is killing. There is some um, swashbuckling, so to speak, but um, not in a way that is comedic or um, childish as may be portrayed in the movies. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious as to how Long John Silver was perceived when the book initially came out. Because he certainly is a memorable character. He certainly is a um, a significant contribution to the literary world. I mean, this this one legged man with a you know a peg leg and you know the 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 amazing way in which he talked by thunder. Um, that's certainly a memorable and a, and a significant contribution to literature. But was he a villain? Was he a good guy? I don't think you can say he was a good guy, but was he really a villain? And I, I honestly, I don't know the answer. I'm interested in hearing what you think, um, because it's easy for me to look at the world as black and white and say you're either good or you're bad. Okay, Wicked Witch of the West, you're bad. Darth Vader, you're bad. Well, up until the end, but still bad. I mean, let's not forget he was bad up until he had a change of heart. Um. You know, Jack the Ripper, bad, villain, nothing redeeming about him. And and the list of, of ultimate villains goes on and on and on. But in this case, I don't know whether Long John Silver is really a villain. I really don't. There is a sympathy to him, I guess. I tried to read this book without allowing my previous experiences with the source material and with the entertainment adaptations to, to seep in to my my reading and so that was why i was concentrating i think a little bit more heavily on the source material itself so i could really understand the book itself how, how it differentiated from the adaptations but i still can't put my finger on whether long john silver is a villain or not because if he's not the villain then who is in this book i mean you could talk about the mutineers at the villains and um, the character of Israel Hands, who, to those of you who are familiar with the um, with the Treasure Planet version, um, the Israel Hands character is probably best compared with um, Scroob, the uh, the spider lobster thing that uh, um, that Long John Silver or that uh, that Jim Hawkins kills back up at the ship because it's a very similar way that uh, that Israel Hands passes away as, uh, as Scrooge meets his maker. Um, but those are minor characters. The mutineers are minor characters. They're followers. Are they villains? 
Yeah, I guess. Because they're the, the, the characters that create the challenge for our heroes. But are they villains? Is Long John Silver a villain? And I, I don't know that I'll ever get the answer to that. I don't know that I will ever come to grips with it one way or the other. Because at the end of the book, when he gets away, you're okay with it. At the end of the movie, Treasure Planet, when Long John Silver escapes, you're okay with it. At the end of Tre uh, Muppet Treasure Island, when Long John Silver gets away, you're okay with it. That's not what our sensibility about villains is. Our sensibility about villains is that they need to get what's their, their just reward. They need to be punished. They need to be taken to task for what they've done. They need to be defeated. Long John Silver is never defeated. Yes, he loses out on the fact that he doesn't get the, the treasure, but he's not defeated. So I'm interested in hearing what you think. So please hit me up. Let me know. You can write to me at booktherapy13 at gmail.com. You can tweet at me at booktherapy13. Um, yeah, I'm curious. I, I would, I, And I might do some more research on this because I'm interested. Um, but imagine, imagine you're Robert Louis Stevenson. And it's 18... Hold on. 18... 1881. Could you at, at any point while you're writing this book, realize that you are creating an entire multi-billion, with a B, billion-dollar industry in one book. I mean, can you can, can I find find for me another instance? Find for me another way that pirates became Hollywoodized, became fictionalized became amusement park fodder if it's not treasure island tell me where it was because i don't know what it is um so the last book that I, I read and i'll only talk about it briefly is called our souls at night by kent haruf h-a-r-u-f and i guess you can say that if this book was written by this guy who was uh he was an american so there's my jack daniels for you okay this is a book that I read solely because um, I'm going to be going to that book club uh, in about two and a half weeks. And so last time we talked about The Gollum and the Ginny, that book they're going to review and discuss in May. This book, Our Souls at Night, is what they're going to discuss in April. So I decided I wanted to read it so I could go to that book club and talk and learn and discuss and do all of this stuff that I do with you except with other people. And this was just a sweet little kind of throwaway book it's only about 180 pages and those 180 pages are small pages um it's not a very long book at all but it's it's kind of a sweet book uh about two people Addie and lewis and Addie is a, a woman in her early 70s i believe and lewis is a gentleman in his early 70s something like that and they live on the same street and they've lived on the same street for many many years and one day, they, uh, Addie, her husband, has long since passed away, and Lewis, his wife, has passed away. And um, Addie comes down to Lewis's house one day and says, you know what, I've decided I'd like to invite you to come stay the night with me. And not in a sexual way, but because there's a need for companionship. And she says, you can come stay over, we'll sleep in the same bed, and we'll talk. And you can you can see that Addie needs the companionship that she has not had since her husband passed away. And it's just a sweet little story about the two of them and their experiences together as they learn to be connected to each other in a non-sexual way. Uh, you know, two people who are in their advanced years, um, and advanced is a, is a pejorative term, I apologize, but they're in their older years who just need companionship. They just need somebody to talk to. They just need to be around somebody. And they face some trials and tribulations, and they have a little bit of a, a backlash from members of the little community that they live in, and then it gets a little bit more dark where um, Addie's son doesn't like the relationship and wants it to end. Um, and then they ultimately decide that they, they can't stay away from each other, and they're going to figure out a way to make it work. 
and that was it. Um, it was a sweet book. It was nice. It was a it was a a per- perfectly enjoyable distraction. Um, it only took me like a day and a half to read, um, and and that was it. I mean, I, not anything more than than just a sweet, innocent, enjoyable little read, and that was all. So by the time we speak next, I will have attended the uh, the book club reading or the book club discussion of that book, and maybe I'll get some more insight to it. Uh, maybe I'll I'll get another perspective on it. Because the people who will be part of this book club probably I identify a little bit more with Addie than they do with um, with me, or they certainly they would identify more with Addie than I identify with Addie, and so maybe that'll be an opportunity for me to gain some different perspective on the book. So maybe we'll talk about that next time. The book I'm reading now is the second book in the Promise Falls trilogy called Far From True by Linwood Barclay, and. Uh, um, I'm really excited about this. This is one that I got it and I put it on my shelf and it was kind of like I wanted to delay the 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 excitement of reading the book because I knew I was going to I was just going to be so excited about it. Um and so I decided to read Our Souls at Night. I decided to read Treasure Planet before this because I I just it was kind of like a a an exercise in self-deprivation, so to speak. Like, I just can't wait to read this book, but I'm just going to hold off a little bit longer. And um, so I'm about 50 pages into that. And it's going to be a few days because I know it's almost 500 pages, but I just can't wait to read this book. Um, so that's it. That's all I got for right now. And uh, I appreciate your bearing with me. And thank you for the emails. Um, I did speak with one of you uh, via email about my my best and worst books of 2015 and I appreciate hearing your best and worst of 2015 and um, I would say so far 2016 is shaping up to be pretty good um, I, I think I've enjoyed most of the books I've read so far this year and uh, that that bodes well for the future because there's a lot of good stuff coming out oh I, I I mean I can't even tell you how excited I am the third book in the the trilogy I don't know what it's called the trilogy by Justin Cronin, the passage, the twelve, and the third book, whatever that's called, comes out in May or June, whatever it is. I can't wait. Love those books. I love the passage. I think I like the twelve more than I like the passage, so I can't wait for this one. Um, there's something else that's coming out pretty soon, and I can't remember what it was. Um, on top of that, season two of Bosch on Amazon. You've probably all watched them already, but my wife and I are slow to get through it. As you can tell, I haven't had a lot of time to talk to you, let alone watch the the, the episodes. But I think we're about halfway through the season two, and they just announced today it's season three. So how freaking exciting is that? Um, so yeah, lots of cool stuff. It's It's a very exciting literary time in the Rob Cohen world. So that's it. Tweet me at booktherapy13 or robcohen13, booktherapy13 at gmail.com. And thank you for letting me lie on your couch.